You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, bangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 18, What the Sparkle, or New Moon by Stephanie Meyer. It's that time of year again, where we do a Twilight episode. Apparently, we've been going so long and we have plans to keep going so long that we do Breaking Dawn in 2018. You know, when we said we'll just do one book a year, we thought, you know what? That'll be okay. That's miles away. We don't need to worry about that. Time makes fools of us all. Indeed, indeed. But on the other hand, at least it's still a long way away before Demon Baby interferes in our life. Nope, that, that haunts me. So this is the first time I've read and watched New Moon since, well, the last time I read and watched it, surprise, surprise, which was um, before Breaking Dawn came out. So that was a long time ago. This is Breaking Dawn, the book. By the time Breaking Dawn, the book came out, I was like, I don't care about the series. Yeah, I read New Moon for the last time and first time. 2006 or 2007 I was still in high school um, so coming off of this sort of initial push of the first Twilight which is like hey this isn't bad I'm interested to see where this goes since everyone seems to be talking about it and then you get to this book and it just comes to this bizarre grinding halt and then you find out that actually this wasn't a book she'd intended on writing but because she got a free book deal she kind of had to write it and the entire thing reeks of contractual obligation Yes, so for those people who aren't too familiar with the background, Stephanie Meyer wrote Twilight and then she went off and wrote the sequel, the original sequel, called Forever Dawn. And most of that is what became Breaking Dawn. So yes, Demon Baby and Uterus Chomping and all that was sort of all planned. That was the story she wanted to tell. <laughs> that was the that was the end game. But it wasn't a young adult book, and when she got an agent and it was going to be published, she found out, whoops, she'd written a young adult book. Which apparently seems to be happening more often than people plan to. They're like, oh, did you know you've written a young adult book? No, I've written an adult book. It just has teenage characters in it. And it's like... But since it wasn't a young adult book and it was just like way in the future, they were like, well, we need to have actual young adult stories. So she went back and tried to figure out what happened in between, and apparently she had a fight with Edward because Edward wanted to leave. I would want to leave too. You know what? We were relatively kind to Twilight when we did our episode because, well, one, that gender-swapped anniversary book hadn't come out yet, so we couldn't be freshly incensed. Um, But also, we kind of had the luxury of, of time and hindsight, like we were kind of we're, we're older and hopefully wiser, and we were sort of able to look at think, you know, this wasn't for us. There's a lot in here we really don't like. There's a lot we think is problematic. But overall, what Stephanie Meyer did, there are merits to that, and here's why. Like I think you can make that case for Twilight. But reading New Moon again, I was struck by just how how sloppy it is, just on a basic storytelling level. It's a mess. It's, as you said, contractual obligation that's trying to get through the um, Star Wars Christmas special. But at least that's silly. This is, like, simultaneously really, really boring and outright offensive. Because it's not 
strange enough to be self-conscious camp, but it's not big enough to be proper melodrama. Like, Kate Bush could have condensed this into a four-minute song and it would have been brilliant. But here, it's... um, The paperback is 666 pages? And nothing really happens. They break up. It's a bit depressed. She does some wild motorcycle writing. <laughs> we'll get to that. There's a bit about werewolves, but not that much. And then there's Sparkle Suicide, which is possibly the single most contrived dramatic plot point I've read in fiction in a long time. And also the worst, some of the worst painted on abs I've seen in film. Oh no, I like that. I love that Robert Pattinson just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm not gonna go to the gym. Don't be dumb. The character of Mike probably has better abs, and I say that as a big fan of Michael Welch. It's just like it was like whatever. They're rock hard anyway, so. But um, we should sort of wrap up what actually happens in the book before we discuss it, because I feel like it's similar. It's it's really really easy and really really hard to explain what happens in this book. There's so much and yet nothing at all. It is. A massive contradictions wrapped in sparkles. It's a novel entirely of setup. Oh god, yes. This is it's very clear that this woman has uh, not written a lot of complete fiction before. I mean, she'd written Twilight, but Twilight is as we've talked about before remarkably plot-free as well. The conflict of that story doesn't come in for about 3 quarters of it. But it works because at least you can say, well, they're establishing a relationship. Here, the relationship has been established in a really short amount of time, and now they need to put conflict in. And the conflict is... Like, I don't want to doubt Jodie Reamer's work. Jodie Reamer is Stephanie Meyer's agent. But just there's something about this that feels like it got a once-over and that was it. Yep, it's going to make us money. Print. I mean, it made her money. Jodie Reamer is a damn genius. But yeah, it's just on a storytelling level, as I mentioned before, it is so messy and weird and incompetent in the simplest of ways. So the book opens, it is um, Bella's 18th birthday and she's so upset that she's becoming incredibly decrepit and old. Her life is over, you guys. She's 18. That means she's older than Edwards. I mean, she's already emotionally about the same age as him. It doesn't really matter. Meanwhile, Emmett in the movie is like, hot older woman, yeah. I mean, I get that aging is a very weird thing to kind of quantify when you're a teenager because you're suddenly aware of your own mortality and all these things. But it was one of the things I have very little... I didn't have a lot of patience for reading it when I was 16 or 17, let alone now when I'm 26. And I'm just like, oh, you think you've got it tough now, sweetie? Oh, wait till you enter the workplace. Oh, yeah, you never enter the workplace. Fuck you, Bella. Sorry. So basically, she realises that, gosh, she's not perfect enough for Edward. You cannot see the roll eyes there that I did, but imagine. And Bella being Bella, things go from bland to worse. Yeah, it is. And like the sort of strange, yeah, I mean, it's almost like a Free Stooges kind of pratfall physical comedy moment, isn't it? Which is also made funnier by the fact that the, um, uh, what's forgotten it? Jasper. Yeah, so I was about to say, it makes it much funnier for the fact that Jasper looks like Harpo Marx. 
But basically, they throw her this extravagant birthday party. She gets a paper cut, and Jasper's like, fuck, I'm hungry, and barges at her. And in order to, quote-unquote, protect her, I don't know if you can see the giant air quotes around the word protect, but Edward pushes her out of the way onto a like a, a glass table, which immediately shatters on her because she's so clumsy, you guys. I don't think she could be counted as clumsy in this respect, considering she was physically thrown into it. Like, in the movie, she's thrown across the room. I have to save her. Fuck out the way. Like like we said, this is just the first example of really bad storytelling. And this is what leads to the ultimate catalyst. It leads to, well, I don't want to say the action of the story. There's no action here. The driving force of the story. Let's put it that way. And the driving force is that they need to get Jasper out of there to calm him down. But what makes Edward realize that he cannot keep Bella safe so he basically does the old yeller routine with her. <laughs> I don't love you anymore, Bella. I'm just going to leave you in the middle of this forest. And I'm going to get rid of all evidence that we knew each other because that's healthy and will help you during this difficult time. <sighs> like, if he was abusive before, my God, the gaslighting coming out of this guy. And then this is what leads to a months-long depression from Bella, which is part catatonia, part screaming in her sleep at night. Now, I think we need to take a stop here from telling the story to talk about the depiction of depression in this story, or what is perceived to be depression, because I don't think it actually is. And I have a lot of problems with how Meyer writes this. To me, this is when the book just becomes... It stops being funny, and it actually becomes really offensive. The thing about depression is it's not a complete absence of everything sometimes you're just too tired to give a shit this is depression that you would feel if you were in a like a jim steinem song and it was being sung by meatloaf and you were hanging from a chandelier it's that kind of depression which would be kind of awesome because i'm in a meatloaf song and therefore i would not be this depressed <laughs> meatloaf song would have a bit of action in it, it wouldn't be 600 pages long but that's what's like it's kind of perceived it's perceived depression from a literary point of view that seems rooted in a tradition that she's almost unaware of. Like, I don't know if she's read much gothic romance or that kind of era of fiction, but the emotions that are going for here are very reminiscent of that, but they don't reach the levels necessary to truly achieve it. Like, Bella is dramatic, but she's there, there's no commitment to that. You want her to be running around the moors shouting for Heathcliff. And she's not. And that also makes it very difficult to read. I think there have been wonderful and very raw, real depictions of depression in literature and pop culture and such, but I just don't think this is one because I don't think Stephanie Meyer understood that it really was going to be perceived as depression. Yeah, the, the thing is, it's not really a depiction at all because it's just the blank pages with the months, which in a retelling sort of sense does make sense because you don't perceive that anything really happened to you in those months. But it's not really showing any of that. There's no scenes of Bella, you know, not showering for a week or... You don't see the element of depression where she just can't be asked with anything, not anybody. Like, you know, she's not getting out of bed in the morning, she's leaving her plates by the bed, she's not washing, that kind of thing. The stuff that you don't really get to see is depression... In, in depictions of it, even though those are probably the elements that people experience the most. Sounds like she was just not interacting with everyone. 
you know, she'd get things done and then just go sit up in her room. Or she would just sit in the room with the TV and not watch it. Which, you know, sort of is correct, but it's just like, if it was as severe as everyone's making out to it to be, I would have liked to have seen some depiction of it. Rather than just, well, Bella's just not talking to us, we'll just go have fun. It's almost... I don't want to. I don't want to say it's cleaned up depression, but it is, or, or romanticized. But there are these elements of it because we don't get to see how it really affects her life. It is this sort of internal, almost woe is me struggle, and obviously that's just part of it being a a first person written. But we don't really see any of the sort of the struggles and consequences of that kind of depression. And I get the feeling that maybe if Stephanie Meyer had done some research and we know that she is almost obsessively allergic to research, maybe there would have been, by her own admission, I'm not being mean, it's by her own admission, but I get the feeling that if she'd done some kind of look into it, there, there, there would have been a more r- well-rounded understanding of that. But also because it's tied to my boyfriend left me, you can't help but read it as as being inherently really kind of patriarchal values are the best and you're nothing without a man yeah uh stephanie meyer actually writes it's not just the fact that her boyfriend left her it's true love how many people get true love and then lose it i'm like you guys knew each other for like nine months no wait eight months and that's just from the first day of school your actual relationship was not quite that long i'm not belittling people who you know meet know pretty quickly that the one but there is more to your life than Edward. I know it sounds strange, but there is. You have a father who is worried, but not worried enough. It depends on what he's needed for in the story. Um, you have friends who you probably don't spend time with you because you neglected them before this all happened. Which is also ties back into the first book where she's almost disdainful of the fact that she has to communicate with other people her own age that aren't vampires. Like, her attitude towards the people who really want to be her friends, who are really enthusiastic about being her friends, is, oh my god, these people are just annoying. And I I understand the arguments that, well, she's just portraying the typical kind of selfishness of your average teenager, but she's also trying to be set up as being better than your average teenager, or at least having the potential to be better than your average human. It is... Real double-edged sword. Don't think she entirely nails either part of it, which makes it a really hard thing to read. One thing that always struck me is Bella is sort of portrayed as a really brilliant student, right? Oh, she's already read all the good books, all the class. She's already done all these classes. When she comes to Forks, it's all easy. She's already done AP English or whatever the Americans do. And yet, probably one of the big signifiers for me that would have really rammed it home would have been a drop-off in her grades because she just can't get through. Yeah, this is also the problem with um, the series in general is uh, Stephanie Myers is almost completely unwilling to endanger Bella Swan. In a, like, I mean, she, considering how often she gets injured... She's never truly at risk, and she's never truly at risk of losing anything that would make her life less than completely convenient. So we don't see a drop-off in her grades. We really don't see much of a change in her relationship with her dad. Charlie is at his most patient here. He's so much better in the film, but, you know, he's actually 
making an effort to just be there for her and make, see if she can get through this. And um, there's a point where it's mentioned that he'd been through something similar. It's hinted that he may have suffered from depression himself. Yeah, it, he still says, you know, when Renee, Bella's mother, at, left with Bella when Bella was a baby, that was basically it for him. He'd lost everything. And he went into some sort of depressed state. And he actually suggests that Bella sees a professional, which makes it clear that I think he had that problem, saw a professional, and it was helpful. He's not the most naturally emotional guy. You know, he's a football and beer and fishing kind of guy. He's almost positioned as being an emotional opposite to Edward. Because Edward is basically, you know, there is a, you know, there's no gap between that man and his emotions. Yeah, but the thing is, when Charlie does express his emotions, it's very honest. Because it's not him spouting out poetry or anything all the time. It's come from a place inside of him and he's managed to get it out. This is a man who sort of just plays things very close or doesn't allow himself to be emotional like many men do these days. But he's not um, shy about telling his daughter that he loves her and that he feels that she needs help and that she worries him, that he's feeling frustrated that he can't help her here and maybe the best thing is for her to go live with her mother again. Yes. Because he doesn't know what to do. And this is also such a contrast from the Charlie we get in Eclipse, which we'll talk about next year. Yep. (laughs) But... The, the the sheer inconsistency of that character, I think, is one of the biggest faults of this series. But we'll get back to that. But in terms of what's happening in New Moon, as I said, we really don't see Bella suffer the consequences of her. Sing- We're going to. I don't want to say if it is depression or not, but this um this lull that she finds herself in, for lack of a better term, there's no real pushback from it, and that adds to the the sheer incompetence of the storytelling for me. And this is one of the biggest problems with the Twilight series in general. I mean, think about that big bad vampire fight that's supposed to happen in Breaking Dawn. And then it's like, nope, we're just, we're fine. We're not going to do it. Everyone go home. We're okay. And we don't actually see the action that stops the fight. It just kind of comes in from off screen. And then Michael Sheen's like, okay. That's why they have to add like the dream fight in the movie. Oh God, that movie. That movie's quite fun, actually. (laughs) That's great for your midnight movies. So the thing that ends up getting her kind of out of her slump is basically two things. Um, her growing friendship with resident long-haired uh, dope Jacob and basically constantly trying to get herself killed so that she can see visions of Edward telling her to stop doing it. This to me was the funniest part of the movie. See, now there's a way you have a problem. This was so much funnier than I remember it being. <laughs> she basically turns into like evil Knievel. <laughs> Basically, she's on. There's a scene where she's on a motorcycle, and she can hear Edward's voice telling her to, you know, look after yourself. Wear a helmet, Bella. Can you do this to yourself? In the movie, that that um, is depicted as actually having Robert Pattinson just like constantly appearing, and it's just. And he's like, "Why the heck am I here? I thought I wasn't supposed to have a big role in this movie." Bad face. Still waiting on those calls from David. He's still waiting on those calls from David Cronenberg. I could be in the gym, not. So that entire element, the thrill-seeking bit, is just so strange. I mean, if the gaslighting of Edward ditching her in the woods and then 
getting rid of all the evidence that they were together wasn't weird enough. Now the way that she fell, finds that she can be whole again is basically to willingly almost destroy herself for the fleeting glimpse of a guy chastising her. It's really strange. I mean, I get the idea that she needs to go to more extremes to feel something, but the hallucinating of Edward is not the something that most people would get. If you are hallucinating Edward while doing risky things, I think you do need to see someone, because you are not Bella Swan. And it would be terrifying. I know it would be for me. The, the problem with this as well is this what leads to um, what Wikipedia refers to as a series of miscommunications. <laughs> that, that could be the entire title of the book, to be honest. But basically, Bella decides that she's going to do a little bit of cliff jumping, like you do, and almost dies. Basically, she is actually saved from drowning by Jacob, who by this point in time has begun to develop feelings for her because, yep, love triangle, ladies and gentlemen. And this leads, it's Alice, sees it as a vision, and thinks Bella's killed herself. So Edward decides... (laughs) I'm sorry, you're going to have to explain this. Okay, so we'll leave it aside the werewolf plot for now. So Bella is like, I've seen the boys do this. This is not so bad. Jumps. It is so bad. She's pulled out of the water by Jacob. Unfortunately, Alice can only see everything prior to the werewolf involvement. Werewolves are a blank space in her. Sorry, it's almost like they only exist for plot purposes when it's convenient. Hmm. Alice only sees Bella jumping off the cliff, not any subsequent subsequent rescue. So, of course, she's like, shit, 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 shit. Only, you know, Mormon vampires, so probably, oh no, oh no, oh no, rushes back to Forks to find out what's going on. She finds that Bella is alive. Things look pretty good. Except, I think Alice told Rosalie, who told Edward about this, because Edward is chasing after Victoria in Rio. And also Rosalie is the quote-unquote bitch in this book. And the first book. And every other book. Alice tells, tells Rosalie, tells Edward, that Bella is dead. I don't know what description of it happened but anyway edward phones home to have jacob answer the phone saying that charlie is at the funeral now the funeral is for harry clearwater who is the father of lee he's had a heart attack but edward takes charlie being at the funeral plus rosalie's report of bella's death to mean well bella is dead which is you know not the worst assumption he could have made from vision of bella's death and funeral but instead of you know doing what some people would i would have you know gone back to forks to you know say goodbye before i committed suicide i would have asked some follow-up questions like that that seems to be the the more obvious way to go (laughs) you know like yeah (laughs) bring back just pull a colombo you know one more thing men and their lack of communication skills ladies (laughs) He decides, I'll go straight to Italy and have um, the Volturi, the vampire pompous rulers, kill me. Because apparently that's what you do. Apparently so. And yet his way of doing this... Okay, first of all, Alice and Bella have to get to Italy, which involves a little light theft. And the fact that she's already got her passport ready and stuff. 
I mean, I would be screwed. Well, it does say in the book that, I can't believe I remember this, Renee had apparently been planning on having a wedding on a beach in Mexico, but that fell through. But not before Bella had done all the paperwork. I'm like, yeah, that actually does sound like Renee and Bella. They go to Volterra in Italy, which is a real place. And his plan to provoke them is to take off his shirt with his completely real and not at all painted on abs, walk into the sunlight, sparkle so everyone sees him. An instant reaction at the time would obviously be, hey, look, it's a vampire, and not, hey, look, it's a backup dancer at a Billy Idol concert. Hey, look, it's a My Little Pony cosplayer. Like, your reaction would not be, look, it's a vampire, because as the series has already established, everything that humans believe about vampires is wrong. Yeah. See, here's the thing about all the Twilight things. There is a point where logic is followed. Original plan is, you know, Edward would do something to threaten the secrecy of vampires. The Volturi have to cut him down before it gets too wide. That is logical. The problem is, this, is that to do that, he sparkles. It's that leap you see in Twilight logical story progression then the world she's built upon it results in hilarity yeah and and then when we finally actually meet the the volturi has there been a more ineffective bunch of vampire leaders saying something because most of vampire fiction is built on really ineffective business plans i mean suicide by vampire rollers okay but that brings in the sparkling and it's like oh dear because it's happening on St. Marcus's Day, right? Which is the day that they celebrate the vampires being driven from Volterra by uh, Marcus, one of the Volturi. So if some guy stepped out and started to spark and be like, is this some kind of the festival? I wouldn't think vampire. I'd think, is he gay or European? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would think, I didn't realise, I didn't realise the gay rights march was coming this way or something. You know, you wouldn't think vampire and that's, I don't even think that crossed her mind. I think she just wanted a shirtless scene. And then I think Arpats was like, oh, no, really? They're the most amazing painted on abs ever. It's practically been done with like somebody's leftover coffee and a paintbrush. Meanwhile, Taylor Lautner was like working so hard. He's like, yeah. And then he shits up. It's like, oh, I did all this work for nothing. <laughs> then again, it's only one shirtless scene versus many. Yeah, that's true. But still, you're getting paid for this, Robert. I actually kind of love the fact that he doesn't do it. It's just so wonderfully, I don't give a fuck. If you listen to any interview he does promoting Twilight, he's just like, I want to do as little work as possible. I don't know why I'm here. So anyway, we get back and we actually get to meet the Volturi, who are rubbish and kind of pointless. In the film, they're a bit better because one of them is played by Michael Sheen, who's clearly been told by his daughter, don't fuck this up for me. Well, what I love about his performance is he's, for, in the first time we see him, he's basically playing vampire Tony Blair. But by the end of this, the series, in the second part of it, he has moved on to full-on, like, Frankenfurter. Like, he knows exactly what movie he's in by that point in time, and he is working it. Whereas the rest of the Volturi are clear, like, I actually wouldn't have minded knowing more about the sheer boredom of being there. You know, just what is it like to be that the leaders of this society of people be that old and have basically be that ineffectual and have nothing to do. Well, here's the thing. When I was reading it, I had a, I had a spot and I'm like, what? And here's the thing. Did you know 
that they're married, not not to each other, but I mean, they have two of them have wives. Oh my god, do they go home at the end of the day like, honey, I'm home. Oh, you won't believe the day that I had. Uh, apparently, I did some looking up because I was like, what? Apparently, they get a bigger role in the um the the love the reimagined one. I haven't read that because why? <laughs> um, yeah, so they end up taking the role of their husbands. So it's um, Aro and Caius, so Michael Sheen and Jamie Campbell Bower. He gets so many acting roles. That man is not a good actor and he is not a good looking man. He's also in the Shadowhunters movie, just saying. And Harry Potter. He's like got the, the young adult trifecta there. He's Dumbledore's boyfriend, isn't he? Yes, he is. Well, the guy Dumbledore wanted to be his boyfriend and that we don't have quite enough confirmation of yet that there was actually any... Oh yeah, that would have been far too much to do, wouldn't it? Well, I think he only has like one or two tiny scenes in the movie where he doesn't do anything. Um, But anyway, I was like, they're married? Because, you know, the wives don't really show up and do anything. Turns out they're locked away in a tower. Oh, okay. But I was just like, of course these three vampires living in Europe together have to have wives somewhere. Because, you know, you can't have any sort of idea that maybe there's a reason why they're all single and living together as bachelors. See, that's the thing, is there's all these moments of incredible potential and then Stephanie Meyer doesn't care. Then again, I'm kind of glad that we don't have, you know, the gay villain type stereotype in there. So... I would have loved something a little more camp in here. You know, just something. I mean, we we get a little bit of it in the movie just because Michael Sheen is working overtime and then there's the running in the meadows. <laughs> Which is good, you guys. But basically what happens in the Volturi is you get they're built up as being this super powerful and slightly shady and very um, merciless coven. And they're basically like... Well, okay, we're not going to kill you just as long as you become a vampire while you're 18th birth. No, but while you, you leave school or they have to get married and become a vampire. They're not really specific, are they? I can't remember. No, they just basically say she has to become a vampire. And, well, timelines for vampires can be pretty eh. But that's why there's no, there's, no, there's no ticking clock here. It's Bella who puts the timeline. There's nothing that says you have to go. Yeah. There's, like, you must become by the time the planets align or something like that. It's like just take your time. It's fine. You go. You go. Love you. You go. Do you? There's and it's that's once again. There's just the stakes are non-existent, and I don't mind the fact that the stakes are low if we understand how important those low stakes are for the people involved. But I never really do because I just didn't care about Bella anymore. I just oh, I want her to go away. It's Bella who starts to put a timeline on this thing, which is basically now do it, bite me now, and everyone's like. No, not yet. Jesus, Bella. Come on, I want to have sex. I mean, be a vampire, but also have sex. I mean, the metaphors here are not subtle. I mean, I give it to the Cullens that the after-graduation is probably the better time because that way they can fade out of most people's minds rather than just, you know, Bella suddenly disappears for a couple of days, comes back red-eyed and sparkly. They at least have some plans for these things. Bella's just like, whatever, do me, do me now. But we also finally get some kind of stakes, which is the questionable treaty between the vampires and the werewolves. 
which seems to exist almost exclusively because they're vampires and werewolves and it feels like they should kind of hate each other. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. I want to say that the end does have one bit of more conflict in there that is absolutely terrible. Edward's condition for the biting is that Bella marry him. <gasps> and Bella's like, no. I want to live forever, but I don't want to get married. I want to live with you forever, but marriage? No. <laughs> it's just like, oh, Bella. See, this was another thing where it didn't make sense to me at all, just in a story point of view. That to me is just really bad writing and not even from the point of view of like teenagers are weird and inconsistent and flighty because the whole book is supposed to be about how Bella is so much more mature and smarter than that and she knows what she wants and then it's like well I don't want to get married I'm only 18 but I do want to be this age forever because if I get any older I'm going to be some decrepit crone she was basically one notebook full of Mrs. Edward Cullens Mrs. Bella Cullens all through it from being that sort of character Actually, that would have been more emotion for Bella than she could have handled. But it's just like, what? we need some conflict in there. It's not, And it's not even Bella going, I mean, yeah, I want to be with you, but people would think it's kind of weird. My mother would react really badly to me getting married super young. It's just, no, marriage makes you get divorced, and that's bad. I mean, it would be really awkward to get divorced from the guy who you've pledged to spend eternity with anyway, but you're a vampire, you'll have lots of money and stuff, you'll be fine. We will eventually have to come back to this in the other books because we'll also get a lovely wedding. I actually, I will say, I really like her wedding dress. Considering it, the clearly, considering there was clearly like a lot of notes that had like modest written in the, the margins, it's a really pretty dress. But my favourite bit of that wedding is where you see Stephanie Meyer in the crowd watching it. <laughs> Just look at her face of like, yes. Gotta get your awkward cameo in there. It's, there's not, I don't know if it's quite as awkward as here are your pancakes, Stephanie. <laughs> Classic. So yeah, I think we need to talk more about uh, we need to come back to the, va- to the werewolves which we've almost entirely skipped over because, because Stephanie Meyer seems really keen to skip over it. <laughs> Prefacing this, we are two white people not from America. Yes. We would direct your attention to the work of Debbie Reese, who we've talked about before on this podcast and who is the best. Uh, yeah, so we'll direct you to the work of Debbie Reese, who d- writes the American Indians and Children's Literature blog. She is a great resource and a great critic in general. Uh, she also has some great links to other people's work, including uh, articles by members of the Quileute Nation and um, other professors of uh, Native American background. There's been a lot of critique done on the treatment and portrayal of Native American characters in the Twilight series, and it's best for you to hear own voices on these matters. Most of what we'll be talking about is basically echoing what they've said, and we'll try and link to as many of these own voices critiques as possible. But seriously, use Google. Even if Stephanie Meyer can't, you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we need to just, obviously, as you understand from that point of view, the Quileute Nation and La Pouche Tribe Reservation are real. Like, actual people live there. These are real Native Americans who have been part of the, the five-minute Googling that Stephanie Meyer did. 
she's been very open about the fact that well, I just needed somewhere where it didn't there wasn't a lot of sun, so I just googled and we got forks. And hey, La Push was there, and that was really useful. Yeah, things are useful. They're not, you know, much else. But what is in here is we have to keep in mind as well in the context that this is made in, as both the books and the films. Native American, uh, Indigenous American uh, representation in pop culture is almost non-existent. There are a handful of people bucking the trend, or at least there are exceptions to the rule, like Sharon Alexie, the writer, um, Adam Beach, who's an Indigenous Canadian actor who's been on things like Law & Order and is in Suicide Squad for about 48 seconds. You know, these actors do exist. These storytellers do exist. They just don't get anywhere near the level of mainstream representation outside of, like, American historical epics that are usually very cowboy-focused. Which is a shame, because I like Adam Beach. Yeah, he deserves so much better than Suicide Squad, you guys. Well, at least he got out of it quick. True. So this is actually a film where Native American actors are getting work and have semblances of character. It's strange that something as problematic at Twilight, at least the film adaptation, is probably one of the most diverse works we've actually discussed on this podcast. Excluding the Native American characters, they're still, they've actually made previously well, characters who were white in the book characters of colour. So like Eric is now Asian, uh, Laurent is now black. And then, of course, when you get to Breaking Dawn, there's, like, so many actors of colour, like Rami Malek's in there actually playing a char- an Egyptian character. Yeah, and actually gets to be the tone of the skin tone that he has. As, as mentioned in Breaking Dawn, I believe it's one of the characters of Latina descent, is described as, basically, when you become a vampire, your skin naturally goes very pale and white, which is a really big problem, you guys. I know. Unfortunately, um, Lauren, um, in this in the new moon, his makeup is terrible. I posted it on the Twitter thing. <laughs> he just looks like ash. He just looks ashy. Oh God! I mean, everyone's makeup is terrible, but this is definitely an example of um. Uh, there's a big problem with um a lot of modern filmmaking, very white filmmaking and cinematography that a lot of directors and cameramen and such don't know how to shoot black actors. So they end up looking very ashy or very, almost impenetrably dark. They don't look like people, you know? I mean, the makeup on the vampires is terrible in general. And then they try and put it onto actors of colour and it just gets worse. It's like when BuzzFeed does a makeover video (laughs) and like the lovely uh, women of uh, darker skin tones just look terrible because they've been done by a white makeup artist who tries to make them paler. Because that's how they know. How, let's say how they know how to contour. I mean, this is one of the things that is a big problem with the depiction of the Native Americans in Twilight series as well. Is that whatever research Stephanie Meyer has done has been very skin level at best, and the way that everyone has described the lives that they. I believe there's actually a moment where Jacob makes a point. Where do you think we're all sort of superstitious native superstitious? Uh, superstitious sorry do you think we're all superstitious natives and it's like well you're you're kind of being depicted as it yeah the quilut tribe we're so sorry if we're pronouncing that wrong um real life um it's a, a like a lot of native american reservations um there are high levels of poverty uh you don't see that in this series 
You don't really see anyone living in poverty in this series, actually. It's a very, very sanitized, just everything. Very sanitized. It's a lot of like, look at all these sort of big bustling broish guys and they all go out to eat dinner and then there's the nice woman cooking for them all. Ignore the fact that she has really horrific facial scars. He didn't mean it. There's so many problems, you guys. We'll touch on Sam and Emily later because I think that's something worth yes. discussing in its own right. But also worth mentioning, um, despite this, um, uh, Taylor Lautner is not native, you guys. He apparently later discovered some native ancestry. How far down the line? But it's uh, it's somewhere in his mother's line. It, uh, it says on the Wikipedia page, um, he has stated he has, quote, distant Native American ancestry, um, specifically... Oh, God. Is this like when Johnny Depp tried to justify playing Tonto by saying, like, oh, my mother, my great-great-grandmother might have been raped by a Cherokee or some point or something? Wow. Yeah, who'd have thought that guy was a scumbag, eh? Wow. Yeah, he's um, Austrian. Well, he says here he has Austrian, English, German, Swiss, German, French, Irish, and Dutch heritage. So Europe. Yeah, <laughs> Europe. <laughs> Tan Europe. There's also the main problem, which is um, the main depiction of this: that the Native Americans are animals. They're inherently mystical people connected to nature in the wild and become uncontrollable wolves. Also, the werewolves are really boring in this, guys. They're not actually werewolves. They just turn into wolves. They're more like shapeshifters than anything else. It's just playing on the classic um, aggressive, wild, animalistic man of colour. You know, the, the pure, restrained white vampire versus the wild, emotional, aggressive... Native American man. Yeah, I mean, we do see that Jasper is unable to control his animalistic urges, but it's he's the exception to the rule in that family, whereas the the werewolf tribe almost seem uniformly bound by the fact that they're various levels of aggressive. And that is a... I mean, that's a huge stereotype just going on there alone. Stephanie Meyer doesn't strike me as someone who's had much contact with people of well, Native American um, heritage or anything like that, probably beyond seeing, uh, you know, kidnapped by the whatever guy on a romance cover in the bookshop. And even and then she wouldn't read that because that's too scandalous. Um, racial makeup of the Latter-day Saints Church has been a topic of contention for a long time. I mean, they, they only decided that God didn't hate black people about 1978, if the Book of Mormon song is correct. One of the things that I really get from her depiction of Native Americans is if this book were written now, there would be much bigger pushback against that. I think we're in a far more um, progressively aware time in the book blogs, blogging circles. And we've seen this a lot with, obviously, we have groups like We Need Diverse Books. We have people like Debbie Reese. Um, the, uh, we have a much wider discussion going on and a willingness to learn and also willingness to hold publishers and writers to task that we didn't used to have. Or we did, but it was nowhere near as much in the public consciousness. Remember when Twilight first came out and there was this pushback to the um, the rape culture and such in the book? That didn't really become 
a driving part of the conversation until the movies came in. It wasn't until like the second or third movie, and by then, a lot of that pushback was just an excuse to be kind of dicks about it. I think part of it would have been people actually seeing it on the screen and going, uh... And also just the wider range of people actually reading it. Parents who are taking their daughters and things like that and going, this is what my kid is reading? And so we saw that, and now we're seeing similar conversations happening around other elements such as uh, sexual and gender diversity and as we've discussed here um, race and the representation of characters of color and now people like Debbie Reese and um, even non-native critics like Bangal Jean and others have much larger voices and audiences to go with them their opinions are being heard on a scale that aren't, that wasn't originally happening with Twilight. Plus, I think there was a much larger natural, naturally defensive shield around Twilight fans who didn't want to hear these things. Yeah, um, Clelinda Jones, who wrote the ultimate recap of the of the entire series, has talked before about the concept of the feral fandom, which was, in this case, a lot of people who were Twilight fan fans driving that fandom not all of them but a large part um you had the teenagers who'd never been in the fandom before and you had the grown women in their 30s and 40s who'd never been in a fandom before and didn't know the generally accepted etiquette of being in a fandom normally when you get a new fandom there'll be cornerstone figures who have been in a fandom before or in these day day and age fandom has become so mainstream that generally people know a lot of the rules anyway but with twilight you didn't get many of those cornerstone figures coming in from much more established fandoms so everything just went to muck it's like what some of the things you'd see with also supernatural and smallville with sending inappropriate things to actors i will say do you, I, I don't know if they would be necessarily a more controlled fan base if the show had start of the books had come out now i mean i feel like they probably would be similar to a lot of those like the outlander fan base for instance I mean, have you gone and checked the Twitter follows of any person involved with that, with that show? It is full of women old enough to be my mother going, Mom, Dad, oh, I love you. And it's just like, stop calling people you don't know, Mom and Dad. That's my pet hate in fandom. I hate it so much. Oh, God, it's like when um, Milo Dushinopoulos, um called Trump <laughs> Daddy. Oh. And it's like, uh, ah, and that's the end of that. Oh my god, you're appropriating stuff by calling someone daddy. But remember, we talked about the feral fandom and what came out of this fandom? Fifty Shades of Grey and the and the mass um, proliferation of pull to publish fan fiction. Yeah. Now, this is not the first time that fan fiction and everything has been rewritten and the serial numbers filed off or people who in a fandom wrote something that was quite similar but original. That happened, but there was a definite understanding of that you really did need to change a lot. With Fifty Shades of Grey and everything else, all the rules were gone. And, of course, all the um, talk about how E.L. James was using the Twilight fandom as sort of her testing ground and to gain followers probably didn't help. Yeah, I mean... It's hard to underplay the sheer influence that Twilight had in terms of fan culture, fan culture from women, and the creative powers that grew from that. I mean, we've all been in fandoms that have had varying degrees of wank, right? Harry Potter, our dear blazers shattered. 
for those who are too young to remember our dear Blazers Shattered, it was when um, Blaze Sabini was finally revealed in canon to be an incredibly attractive young black male. Everyone who had portrayed him as a slightly emo um, male person of Italian descent. Or women. Well, it, they sort of stopped that after J.K. Rowling mentioned that Blaze was a dude. <laughs> but once they saw he was black, oh boy. And of course, you know, you've got Snaps on an astral plane and um, everything to do with Cassandra Clare. And... Oh, but this is something is, that's worth mentioning is Harry Potter is obviously the defining fandom of the fandom age, I think, next to Star Trek. Uh, but what is defi- what is important to note about those two universes is how expansive they were. How much of that was built on the world building. There were obviously shippers, but there were also huge swaths of it who did no shipping at all. They just expanded elements of the story, of the world, of the people, of Hogwarts, of the lineage, and so on. Yeah, role-playing in schools in different countries. Yes, and there was nowhere near that amount... At least it wasn't as much of a defining feature in Twilight fandom of that world. It was exclusively the shipping, particularly Bella and Edward. Not to say that there weren't very enthusiastic Jacob and Bella shippers. There were. Um, also because the um, the publishers pushed that angle. Are you Team Edward or Team Jacob? Remember when that was a huge thing? Yeah, and then it became Team Every Dude versus Dude. Even Team Brad... I'm sorry, not Team Brad. Team um, Angelina versus Team Jennifer. It just became a way of fueling competitive nature between two shipping groups. I mean, you thought it was bad when it was um, Harry and Ron versus Harry Hermione, you know, good ship versus pumpkin pie, whatever the crap they were calling themselves. Yeah, I was sitting over in my corner of um, Draco Hermione because I was terrible. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Harry Draco forever. But yeah, it was promoted as forming conflict between groups of fans. But I think we've sort of totted off a bit. But to touch back on the feral fandom and the the real-life interaction and the treatment of Native Americans, we saw it with the commercialization of so much Native American-styled um, th- products for purchase and the incredible boost of tourism that happened to Forks, Washington, and thus um, La Poche and the Kulu Reservation. I don't know if you can still see it there, but there was, you know, houses being labelled as like Bella's house. So they had Bella's truck parked outside and everything was Twilight branded because it was a small dying, well, not dying, but a town that was definitely suffering with the um, reduction of the forestry industry and things like that. So it was a very seasonal type place, but Twilight Phantom is all year round. And of course, people would go want to go to the Quileute Reservation. Unfortunately, there was a lot of disrespect being done towards the Quileute nation itself. People were, you know, wandering through graveyards and taking things that they shouldn't have. Or people were selling Quileute um, branded. There's a lot of air quotes that you can't see because I keep doing the air quotes (laughs) and it's on audio. Um, People selling Quileute branded things which were, A, not made or sold by the Quileute nation, but also overriding anything actually being made by them. They did see an increase in tourism uh, to their small cabins and they were doing more boat trips and things like that, but they were being overwritten by the twilight idea of the Quileute Nation and not the actual reality. 
I suppose it'd be like all the people who came to New Zealand to see the Lord of the Rings, but even worse because of the... Um, it's the appropriations of a very... Yeah, the appropriation. Thank you. That's the word. It's really early in the morning. It's the appropriations of a very real culture that has been greatly marginalized by history and by white people because we suck and turned into something cute and convenient and quote-unquote sexy and dangerous. And the real people who live in the Lapouche Reservation have other things to deal with. So it is this weird kind of I mean, obviously, we're we're two white chicks who aren't from America, so we really can't speak about this with authority, and we do recommend you read the work of Debbie Reese. Um, this is not new in fiction. It is not new to see Native American stories and people be packaged into something mystical or special or assisting of the white people. And given how real problems are right now for a lot of um, native communities in America, particularly with the North Dakota pipeline problems. It's hard not to see this within the context that it is made. See, I don't know if I have much more to say about the because I, I really don't want us to end up white-splaining, you know? Yeah. Yeah, talking over the action. What, what seems to be happening here is Stephanie Meyer is a white writer, like us, but one who... A, is just generally allergic to research in general. B, and combined with the just the idea of I can just write whatever I want, it's fiction. And then just a lack of general contact and understanding with any sort of, the, any sort of community other than her own creates a, a terrible storm of white people don't know shit. Yes. But that's okay. I'm white. I can write whatever I want. First, I think we need to talk about Jacob, and then I think we need to talk about Sam and Emily. In some way, you can sort of see Jacob's transformation as that of teenage boy. He has all these weird feelings, and he can't control them, and he keeps ruining his pants and his shirt. <laughs> there is a great moment in Eclipse where Jacob is kind of coming to intimidate Belle and Edward, and Edward says, does that guy not own a shirt? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Oh, in the movie, there's a bit where they turn into werewolves and they can just see the clothes explode. I'm like, I'm thankful for that little detail because, you know, most of the time the clothing just disappears. Mm -hmm. But then you're like, wait, there are teenage boys running around forks naked. This is a problem. I mean, actually, keep in mind as well, um, Stephanie Meyer has three sons. I feel like she kind of gets guys, at least in that aspect, because she's sick and tired of having to deal with all these guys and her having so much testosterone. Also, remember that the uh, Lapush werewolves are named for her brothers. Yes. Like, I feel like there's a lot of id in this book. Like, Anne Rice levels of id. I mean, the thing is, it's really hard. Like, the, the thing about Jacob is he starts out pretty... Like, Jacob is the kind of guy you want to spend time with. He makes an effort to be a friend to her. He's fun. He knows how to have a laugh. He's a bit of a motivator for her. And then he goes through hairy puberty. And it's a little exhausting just because you've already had all of this this time with Edward being a mope. And you're like, no, I need non-mope. We need non-mope. Anti-mope, no mope. When he was just this kid who was a little younger, a bit of a dork, being a dork around the, the girl he knew as a kid and she's come back and she's kind of pretty... That was realistic. But when every other guy was also falling for Bella, despite her being super plain, it quits. 
it was just kind of uh, he just sort of gets brought in to become romantic rival because we needed conflict and plot even though the whole storyline is very clear that he's not going to win and then there's just the idea of winning the girl is just bleh well, this is also the other major problem of the story, which is, and this is my major problem with the the love triangle in general, is it is really rare to read a book with a love triangle where both parts of that triangle in terms of, both parts of that triangle are on equal footing and have equally have the same odds of getting the guy slash girl. Because we all, like, we're saying, we know Team Jacob's never going to win. We know Team Harry Hermione is never going to win. And yet... We can, and I mean, this came a problem as well when they started pushing it in the Hunger Games. Even though Suzanne um, Collins was kind of really not didn't want this romance element, see it on the teacher and stuff. It's easier to sell the team angle because it encourages that kind of competitive spirit in fans, which can get really, really messy if you've got a feral fandom, or even if you've got a non-feral fandom, it can get very messy. And hey, it's profitable. Literally, you can sell merchandise. Yeah, slap it on a T-shirt. You can make money. And that to me is where this feels like an almost editorial mandate, because I don't think, I think if it was up to Stephanie Meyer, the relationship would have probably been more brotherly-sisterly. Considering who she named it after him after, possibly. Exactly, that's, what the, that's the thing. Bella is the name she said she would have given a daughter if she'd had one, and then she's got Jacob, who's one of her brothers is called Jacob. Plus, remember, this is being written post the writing of Forever Dawn, in which um, Jacob does imprint on Teeny Tiny Demon Baby. So she knew that was endgame. And the thing is, that seems more... The, reading what I have heard from Forever Dawn, and I haven't actually read it, uh, but with the imprinting there seems more like a, like an uncle or a family mech. I am your guardian. But once you add in... I used to want to marry your mother and now I'm going to kind of have you as a consolation prize and you're going to grow up and be 18 years old when you're seven? It's like the basis for a lot of Harry Snape fiction. I couldn't be your dad, so I'm going to be your daddy. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I can't add that to my head. Uh. It's very electro-complex, isn't it? So in the context just of New Moon, before we even get to uterus, chewing, imprint, baby, creepy doll, oh my god, that doll is so creepy, um, what we have here with Jacob is someone who's always going to be second prize. Even for he actually gets personality here, he's just someone who actually has something of an arc that we don't necessarily see with Edward. Or we didn't see with in the first book, at least. He's growing up, you know, so he's facing just general challenges of being a teenager and growing at different things. He's taking up, like Bella, he's taken on responsibility of looking after a parent um, or at least doing extra things to help a parent because Billy Black is a wheelchair user. So he drives him around the place and things like that. And then he's also dealing with crap, I'm a werewolf kind of thing. But even before then, he's he's losing his friends He's feeling like, you know, he's in love with a girl who is not going to love him back, no matter how much he tries. And also werewolves. His voice is changing. He's got acne and he's got fur where there wasn't fur before. His body is changing in new, exciting ways. And now you know how it's done. Don't do it. <laughs> Simpsons cool for everything, you guys. 
He's ripping his jeans where he wasn't ripping them before. But that's the thing is, Jacob is depicted as being a flawed character. Therefore, he's not perfect. Therefore, he's not the perfect man for Bella. Because even Edward's flaws are pathetic. Edward's flaws are terrifying. Most of Jacob's flaws are realistic. Yeah, but Edward's flaws are not depicted as being terrifying. They're just like, oh, well, you know, slings and arrows. Yeah, once I get bitten turned perfect too, there won't be a problem. Because the sex will be awesome. We'll have to buy a lot of beds, but oh well, we have the money. And you can't help but look at that and like, knowing what we know about the Lapouche Reservation and people who actually live there and their economic status, which we don't see in this book, but it is hard not to contrast the life that Jacob leads with the life that the Collins lead, which is so utterly convenient in every way that they never have to worry about anything. And, well, the way that the world is depicted here, Jacob and that don't seem to have to worry about their, their standing or their life because we don't ever see that as a problem. It's never written as a problem. That never enters the equation. So it's a shame because I feel like I feel like Jacob always deserved better. Even when he's a dick, and he's such a dick in the third book. Keep in mind that he basically forces himself on Bella. And then she slaps him, I believe, or punches him. Something like that. And hurts her hand because he's a werewolf and she's not. She's so clumsy. <laughs> she's so clumsy, she clumsied her way right into his jaw. He has bratty moments, he has jerkish moments, but it's very true to the confused teenage boy. And he's actually a teenage boy. He's not 107 years old. He's a teenage boy trying to emotion, but he can't. I have feelings and I don't know what to do with them. Not all of them are in my pants. <laughs> I can't find my pants. They're in shreds across the field. Which is sad, because he's probably one of the most realistic characters in this book, because he has an actual personality that isn't dependent on being utterly unemotional slash emotional like Edward, or as I've said before to you, Bella is a mirror. She reflects the personality of whoever she's with. She's snarky with um, Jacob because Jacob is snarky. She is over-the-top melodramatic with Edward because Edward is over-the-top melodramatic. And she's blank with Charlie because she don't give a fuck about Charlie. It is honestly the way that he gets screwed around. If I were a Team Jacob fan and I got around to reading Breaking Dawn, that book would not have made it out of my hands in one piece. And that's a big book. That's a lot of book. And that's the thing was, we've, you know, you have this character who is going through the motions of, of adolescence, albeit on a very heightened mythical myth, myth, scale. Um, the end game is for him as it is for everyone in the series, which is heteronormative 2.4 children happy ever after. He gives his life and characterization in service of Bella and her story with Edward. And his consolation prize is a demon baby. <laughs> Who, in a few years, he'll be able to bang. A reminder that no judge under any circumstances would ever say, I know she's seven, but she looks 18. What about that one who judged Brock Turner? Rape culture sucks, you guys. But I think this is actually the natural jumping off point to tackle what is, in my opinion, the most egregious thing in the book, which isn't anything to do with Bella, Edward or Jacob. It is the relationship between side characters called Sam and Emily. And, he, and the thing about Sam and Emily is they suffer from the same problems that most of the other secondary characters have. Because Stephanie Meyer doesn't put much thought into them, 
the little thought she does put into them becomes horrifying because of the lack of anything else. Because this thing, her focus is Bella and Edward. I think if she had a chance to write this where each character didn't actually have to have characteristics, they could just say, I'm here to help you along with the plot. Bye now. She probably would have. So we get the tribe of werewolves, their pack, and the alpha of the pack is a guy called Sam. And he previously dated Leah, who is the only female vam- female werewolf of the clan. Now, a lot of the stuff does come more come out in Eclipse rather than... Um... Yeah, but I, I think we need to create the full picture of the problem here just to understand the context. Um, so he dated her, and then it, ca- it went all wrong for two reasons. One, he was becoming a werewolf and didn't know how to tell her. These are very difficult boys. They, they don't have any, you know... It's tough for them to talk about their emotions and their hair. So you have that problem, and then he imprints on Leah's cousin, who's a woman called Emily. Imprinting in this world is basically, I have found my soulmate, the centre of my universe, and bam, my mind has decided that they are mine, and I cannot get rid of that ever, so now we're together. It doesn't have to be in a sexual context, but by and large they seem to be exclusively in a sexual context, or at least romantic context. It will become a sexual slash romantic context once the woman is old enough. Yes. And it's all very one-sided. The woman just sort of gives in. She's not actually bound on the own, on her own side by the red string either. She just sort of gives in to the attention. Yeah, the implication is that, well, why would you ever want to give up that kind of adoring attention, that unconditional love? Why would you ever want to say no to that? That's really what we get here. And what happens to Emily is that when Sam is morphing one day, he can't control himself and he slashes her face open. Like, three long scars that she has down the side of, I believe it's her left, the left side of her face. I think it's her right. Well, whatever it is, basically one side of her face is described as being incredibly beautiful and then the other side you have these massive scars. Like, horror level scars. This is obviously a bad thing, but Emily just feels really sorry for him. And he does sort of, you know, threaten to throw himself under a bus and things like that. So, ugh. I mean, she's initially, she's not happy about it. She's pretty angry, as you would be. Because this is also tied in with the, you're dumping your cousin for me, this girl you just met. Yes. And, yeah, and also... It's, as I mentioned before, basically the complete loyalty he shows her and adoration and I love you so much and I'll do anything for you. She, It's difficult for anyone to resist. And after he slashes open her face, she starts to feel kind of sorry for him and bears no ill will towards it. And now she is happily living with him as his one true love and making sure that all of the werewolves are well fed. This could have been a complex relationship, you know, a terrible accident, and they are trying to work through it. There's a level of distrust between the two of them, despite any affection. He is still struggling with himself, and she still has an inherent fear of him. They could have been quite complex, but it's combined with the imprinting and everything. It just takes on a nasty tone. It is very Beauty and the Beast, but in a much more heightened and inherently troublesome way and then become super perfect despite the the problems started with her and not even we don't see growth we don't even hear about the growth of that it's just because it's, it's completely inconsequential the story it can't even be used 
to move the plot forward or emotions for Bella in any way, so why would it matter? There's not even a bit where Emily sort of says, look, it may seem perfect, but there is hard work and there there is an inherent risk with you know, being with a werewolf or a vampire, whatever. You need to be careful and understanding that things could go wrong or at least be prepared to protect yourself. There's nothing. It's just like, oh, the accident happened, he felt guilty, now they're happy as Larry. And she's perfectly happy to fill the role of basically being the house wife and mother yes and my boys oh god so much hair in the house i remember when i was talking about this years ago with someone why i had the problem with this and their response was well he's a werewolf and it's like okay first of all werewolves aren't real second of all domestic abuse is very real and you shouldn't you shouldn't have to look at these stories in a completely apolitical manner that's not how fiction works. If you want to read it like that, go for it. I'm not going to stop you. But this is a very, very clear metaphor for those of us who have seen this in fiction an awful lot because it appears in fiction an awful lot. How often are women the collateral damage in monster movies? So this is just one of the elements... This is really another element of Stephanie Meyer's failure as a storyteller and a writer to craft a wider narrative because... She has fantastic ideas, and there are these glimmers of incredible potential in all of, in almost all of these, in these situations. And you see more of this in Eclipse when we get the backstory to a, the, the Cullen Hale family. But she's very open about the fact that I just didn't want to do any research. Yeah, she half-asses it, and I just don't feel like there's any excuse for that, especially when you get the amount of money she got for writing these books and the amount of money she made from these books. I said there could have been a very complex relationship from people to between Sam and Emily, you know, him going to uh, anger management or learning to control himself. This is literally a guy who lashed out at his girlfriend. There's no sign of change or growth or even leaving him. It just becomes, I, I feel so bad. Take me back which, as we know, is part of the cycle that we see so often with things. I hit you, but I'm so sorry I brought you flowers. And put that in the con- put that in the context of what we know about the, the Edward-Bella relationship as well. And then tie it in with the whole problematic issue of the, the violent man of colour versus the... The violent, quote-unquote, nice guy. Yeah. The violent Native American and the abusive relationship stereotypes you see so often with the as you said the the animalistic native american or the abusive man of color the aggressive black man stereotypes versus edward being given all the chances and um benefit of the doubt because he is whitey mcwhiterson he is so white i mean and i say that as whitey mcwhiterson you know sitting next to windows getting sunburnt and this was what was interesting to me about I, I didn't read the gender-swapped anniversary book. But what was interesting to me about that was how much of it seemed built on Stephanie Meyer's insistence that she wanted to prove that the book wasn't sexist, and I think she ended up just reinforcing that. But all of the issues gender. Race has never entered the equation for her, and I don't think it ever will. Like, I don't want to assume or play armchair psychology here. It's just, it's very clear that that isn't her, that isn't her concern with the story she's created. Nor is it the concern of E.L. James, who gets quite racist in Fifty Shades as well, except it's not Native American, it's Hispanic. Jose? Yeah. Dios mio, that's all he fucking says. 
I mean, we will talk about more of this coming years when we tack on the rest of the books. Oh, oh joy. Um, so much of Twilight is wasted potential. And even when we're, frankly, I think we're being far nicer about this than we would have been if we'd had this podcast three or four years ago. Yeah, there would have been a lot more, God damn it, Stephanie Meyer sucks. But then again, we've seen worse things come out of out of Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, and we've seen when the worst thing was Twilight and there was no Fifty Shades of Grey, there was no Hush Hush, there was no every other gross thing that followed Twilight. You know, Twilight was like the stepping stone to, oh my God. Yeah, I have no words. Actually, I have plenty of words, but that'll be for another podcast. <laughs> I think the thing with this book is that, as we said, it's basically an entire book of setup. I think it would have worked a lot better if they'd smushed the first bit with the maybe the leaving and then the werewolves and everything into the first part of a book and then brought in Victoria's Vampire Revenge straight in, rather than the Volturi Sparkle Suicide. Have Jacob lose it, and they're like, okay, we need to take a step back and just set the things out. We'll be back as soon as we can, and maybe Edward starts thinking, actually, maybe it would be better if we didn't go back. And, you know, it just slowly fades out like that sort of douchebag, rather than, you know, just casually stop replying to emails or get slower and slower in the hopes that, Bella will just move on with her life. Let her down slowly and gently. I would have liked to have seen more of Bella actually maybe deciding maybe I should get on with my life. Because it wouldn't have it wouldn't have lessened her love or devotion. It would have just been what most of us do when we've had our hearts fucked over, which is we get on with our lives because we have to. And she's doing that, but Victoria's still out for revenge, which brings the Cullens back. You can't protect her by staying away. And how would that affect her if she is now not part of their lives? If she has decided, okay, maybe it's right that I don't have anything to do with you, but I can't stop myself from being dragged into that. That's not my that's not my doing. You thought leaving me protected me, but I'm still in trouble because of it. You know, they're trying she's trying to solve the problem or she finds out and so she reaches out saying, Look, guys, I need your help. Victoria's back and she's back with a vengeance, literally. And then you could have brought in the the awkward attempts by the two groups to deal with this issue despite the bounds of the treaty, and which is something that Debbie Reese talks about. And sort of treaty is done between two two nations, which sort of gives the idea that the vampires are their own nation comp- and uh, alongside the Quilutes. Them trying to navigate this old treaty with this new problem. You know, they can't protect Bella outside of these lines, but the vampires also can't help on the other side of the line when the obvious solution would be to work together, but they're bound by the constraints of this treaty and whether they follow it to the letter. Yeah, exactly. Which would have involved research. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I just want to talk about briefly um, with you is the movie, uh, the movie adaptation, which was directed by uh, Chris Weitz who at this point in time was probably more famous for being a producer on American Pie. He also did About a Boy, didn't he? Or was that his brother? Yeah, About a Boy, he wrote, co-wrote the screenplay for Ants and uh, Nutty Professor 2. <laughs> he's, a, he's a man for hire. He was a producer on American Pie, American Pie 2, American Wedding, American Dreams. He did. The, he was the director of um, The Golden Compass, Compass, produced Nick and Nora's 
yeah, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I hated that movie. So, you know, he was more the teenage comedy type thing, maybe. And then, you know, he tried the fantasy thing with Golden Compass. Didn't quite work out. Well, this is the thing which is, which we've seen with a number of big movies, which is the woman shepherds it into being, into success. And when it makes a lot of money, they're like, well, we should give this to a guy. Yeah. And Catherine Hardwick gets the, gets the cold shoulder. You can definitely feel a difference. Like this one has such a greater emphasis on action, whereas the first one was very, you know, that heightened emotional sense. Well, we don't want the boys. Exactly. Although it's like, why are you marketing towards the boys anyway? Boys are important, apparently. I mean, think about the the big fight scenes in this movie, the big action wolf scenes. This, all this, the vampire speedmo and things like that, as opposed to in the first one, which was just that really heightened, really close in emotional relationship. It's emotional as well. Yeah, it's emotional, but it's um, it's very stylistic. I mean, the color palette of it alone. It's very brown. But the thing is, when they put the emphasis on the action, you realize actually the action is not very well directed. There's no weight to the way that he moves, or the, the the werewolves jump, you know? Yeah, it's just, we need to have more action, make it more exciting, or at least a, a guy in charge presumes that's what it should be, or thinks it should have more of. But it doesn't quite work out that way. There are a few things that are good, like seeing more of the what the werewolves are up to when they're outside of Bella's point of view. That always works. It's like when Twi- Twilight, the movie, brought in the the James and his cohorts killing people earlier on in the movie. That helped bring the conflict earlier, and I think that should have sort of been a bit more emphasized in the book, but they couldn't do it as much. Well, possibly couldn't do it as much because of the first-person perspective of Bella, also her egocentrism and Stephanie Meyer's lack of doing shit. But here, it really does seem like they were like, well... It's successful. We need to make it more palatable for the men. It was one thing when it was an independent woman filmmaker doing independent woman filmmaker things. But now that they realized they had a huge franchise on their hands, it had to be done a certain way. And that included more action, more... Generally a more workmanlike approach, I think. Like, Catherine Hardwick clearly cared about making that movie. I feel like Chris White's for this was, was a check... Oh, once again, I'm playing armchair psychology here, but there there is this weird kind of beige vacation of everything in this story, even though it's not an especially cinematic piece of work. There's still stuff that you could do, and I just feel like the attempt here was make it for when they say make it for as wide an audience as possible, they mean make it for men because women can't open films apparently, even though this film made how many million dollars? It was only beaten by. Um, Deathly Hallows 2 so that right there I mean that's how much it was doing this movie had its own style to it it had its own personality and style and it, it matched the book more that hyper everything that came with the book this one is just very standard it's just getting the the job done which is I mean it did, it got the job done and it made a lot of money so, you know, we're just griping, I guess. For me, the, the movie is, is Michael Sheen. <laughs> like, I would watch a whole... Yeah. Like, can we cast him in a Rocky Horror stage production, please? 
No, I'm just imagining Ra- um, Raul Esparza as one of the vampires in this. Oh, that would have been good. Uh, obligatory mention. <laughs> well, usually we leave that for Drew Sarek. Well, I did mention Von Krolock, so... Sorry, honestly, if you're coming at this as someone who's never read Twilight or curious to see what the fuss is about, I don't think you necessarily need to read this book. I mean, if you're a completist, go for it. Read Cleolinda's, read Twilight, read Cleolinda's recaps of New Moon, maybe read The Mug of Eclipse, it's been a while, so I can't remember much of that book, but maybe that as well, and then read Breaking Dawn, because that's just bonkers, and then read Cleolinda's recaps of that, because she's having the time of her life. Those were, those were fun times, and we're grateful for the work that she did. So the term gaslighting has been thrown around a lot lately, mostly... Uh, to do with Donald Trump and his attempted gaslighting of America and the world. But gaslighting does sort of play a role in Twilight, not Twilight, but in New Moon. For those who aren't familiar with gaslighting, you probably actually are familiar with gaslighting in the sense that somebody's tried to do it to you. The term gaslighting comes from a 1938 play by Patrick Hamilton called Gaslight. In the US, it's also known as Angel Street. I'm reading this straight off the Wikipedia page. It is, quote, a form of psychological abuse in which false information is presented to the victim with the intent of making him slash her doubt his slash her own memory and perception. In this play, the um, husband is trying to get his wife to be committed as a crazy person to an asylum. And one of the things he does is he manipulates the lights in the house, the gas lights in the house, so that they sort of flicker and go go out and do things like this. And he acts like nothing is wrong, making her think, well, if he doesn't see the lights doing it, something must be wrong with me. In uh, modern days, it's like, examples would be Donald Trump saying, I never said that when we have him on video. He's trying to correct your memory with a falsehood. It's the insistence that your experiences aren't real or they weren't what you you know them to be. So for every woman who's experienced some kind of sexism or misogyny and you've had a man tell you back that wasn't sexism, that was just a laugh, you're imagining things, that's not how it happened, don't lie, that kind of thing, that's gaslighting. Yeah, that wasn't sexual assault, you just regret bad sex. That, exactly. That's locker room talk. So it's a really insidious form of mental and emotional abuse and it's really come to the forefront over the past few years as progressive rhetoric and dialogue has become more part of the part of the discussion more on the forefront you may not have known that it was called gaslighting but it's certainly a term you hear more nowadays especially if you you follow a lot of online feminist discourse and we talk about the gaslighting in the context of new moon because what edward does to bella for her own good he says not only break up with her with the old yeller routine but almost entirely erase, try to erase any evidence of his presence in her life. Because it wouldn't be en- enough for her to, you know, maybe have a picture with him that would, you know, she could at least look back on and say, well, I miss him, but at least I have the memories. He denies her the memories. He tries to erase himself from her life as much as possible. And says he does it for her own good. And it's not for her own good. It clearly causes her a lot of pain and distress because she doesn't even have those memories to look at and because nobody else seems to really care that the Cullens are gone it almost would feel like she is the only one to remember them it's like a fantasy or horror movie where somebody's child is gone and nobody else remembers them or 
some, they, they remember an event that nobody else seems to. And considering Bella knows certain things about the Cullens, it would almost make her doubt like anything else ever happened. Well, at least that's what the attempt was. She didn't just know and fall in love with this guy named Edward Cullen, but she totally imagined the vampire thing. Maybe she really did just fall down those stairs. I would argue that this makes her and Edward's relationship ultimately more codependent because she's you know suffered mentally with the loss and being denied the reality of that loss and then when he comes back after the the series of misunderstandings she almost latches onto him in a more extreme way in our last episode on twilight we discussed that um edward has his own needs for um love and affection and contact finding someone who will give them to him is uh, you know an addicting situation they really do fuel each other and not in a good way (laughs) it's hugely unhealthy it becomes less like a relationship and more like an addiction it's like harley and joker but with the spousal abuse not being as obvious and yet still not obvious enough it's like it's a little bit like how suicide squad portrays harley and joker as just being like they're wacky and they're in love and isn't that cool no it's not (laughs) Whereas in recent comics, it's been very clear that Harley has struggled to get away from Joker and that she will never let any man abuse her again. Even the earliest um, depictions of the Harley-Joker relationship was very clear that it was an abusive relationship. Mad Love ends with Harley saying, you know, I'm not going back to him. He just used me. And then she sees that he's brought her flowers. Oh, look, he he really does care about me. That's the thing, you know, Edward comes back. Any character growth she somehow managed to achieve on her own and with Jacob is gone. I was watching Rick and Morty last night and there's a moment where someone has this really you know, deep emotional moment and then uh, Rick fixes it and he runs out the door screaming, I learned nothing! <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, I pointed out to you before we started recording that... Bella and Edward meet January 18th. I'm reading this off the Twilight Saga. Ugh, Saga. Um, Timeline. Wiki timeline. So they meet on January the 18th, and the car accident is the 25th, and the James fight is March the 16th. So all of that happens in just over, in the space of two months, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then Bella's birthday is September 13th, so that's eight months between their first meeting and... Every and they're leaving, and then they reunite in March. So that's almost as much time spent apart as they were together. And now they've got the added thing of he would die for he would die to be with me, but we and we want to be together, but we can't. Fueling their sense of dependence and I guess persecution because the Volturi are going to force her to become a vampire. It totally encourages it. Us against the world. Which this ties into what I think is just, I don't think she writes this in terms of, you know, from a misogynistic point of view, or, you know, I mean, don't think most writers do. I think most writers just come from what writing, and we all absorb a lot of this. Um, the problem is she doesn't have the craft to back it up. It's like this book is really meant to reflect Romeo and Juliet to the point where they keep mentioning it all the damn time. It's not even the best romance in a Shakespeare story. But then it's just like, 
but everything's okay. Yay! Although it did give us the great scene where the, the teacher is mouthing along with the words and then, you know, some of the students are bored and some of them are, and the girls are kind of more paying attention and then they then they head across to Eric who's in tears watching this thing. <laughs> Best thing is I think the movies role at least have a little more humour about them. Edward has more of a personality. He snarks. He... Yes. I feel like Robert Pattinson begged for that. <laughs> I can't mope anymore. My face hurts. Or he just, I refuse to say these lines. I'm just going to keep saying the snark. I'm an actor for God's sake. I was in Harry Potter. <laughs> I've got David Cronenberg calling me. I worked with lists of all the famous British actors in <laughs> Harry Potter. I ate lunch with Maggie Smith, damn it. <laughs> I, I think ultimately that's the, the, like any of the interesting elements of the story really are sunk by sloppy storytelling. Any of the, the freshness or the strangeness is almost like the edges have been sanded away, which you see more of that in the film as well. So do I think Stephanie Meyer became a better writer? I know. Like, the host says no. Maybe this new book she's got coming out next month will, will signal the, like, a change. That is what I'm actually looking forward to checking out, The Chemist. Um, just because it's been so many years since she's written anything and she's sort of been involved on the production side and seen how the sausage is made and she's also just had some time to think about it and get things done. I am curious just to see whether time has helped her. And if self-awareness has helped. I think she's far more aware of her image and her brand and the, the world that she's, you know, the consequences of what she created. She did write the Twilight Reimagined thing, but that was highly constrained by the original plot line. And let's be honest, that was written to piss off E.L. James. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that will be interesting. As it stands, if you're a reread of the series, if you've never read it before and you want to kind of get a if you want to follow along everything we do because you're such huge fans of us, um, I would skip this. <laughs> hey, we have dozens of listeners. Tens, even. So, you know, like I said, I mean, if you must watch the movie, it's it's probably, I would say, the weakest out of all the movies. Watch all the Michael Sheen scenes. He's awesome. Um, and just head over to our friend Cleo's recaps. We will link them on our website. Yeah. No, the movie is... I was going to say not bad, but that was going to be a lie. There are things in the movie that I like. I mean, I like Michael Welch because I like him in everything. He's one of those minor actors that you're like, oh, oh, it's him. I like him. And he's one of my I, I like him actors. He was young um, slash clone Jack O'Neill in Stargate. And he was in Jonah Arcadia. He's got Daniel Cudmore, another one of my, oh, I like him. Which is funny because he was the original fan cast for Emmett. And now he's playing another vampire in the series. They have amazing fake movie posters. There's one for Face Punch. <laughs> I was tweeting about that last night, actually. There was one called um, Gambling Gods and LSD. <laughs> and there's some sort of possibly romantic comedy about parking. Plus, you know, the movie does give us that scene where they're in the movie and both guys have their hands on the thing waiting for her to take take them and Mike's just looking like he's about to puke Bella's like torn between her usual bland face and just the oh god and 
Jacob just looks like he's having fun. I'm like, these are, these are my three emotions <laughs> watching slash reading New Moon. The blah, the meh, and the... <laughs> New Moon is a serviceable movie. And I think New Moon is also a serviceable book. It tests your patience more because you can watch a movie in two hours. This book is 600 pages long. Yeah, so it took me about four hours. It's not a difficult book to read. No, it's just tiresome. Yeah, it's like, oh, I have to get them. And then you're like, wait, they have wives? Why am I only hearing about this now? There goes my image of them all living together in Europe. Herbert style. It's a book and a movie. It doesn't have a lot of the, any of the goodness that Twilight had, that that heady emotional sense that's kind of addicting. Like, even last year when I read Twilight, I was like, yeah, I can get it. I don't like it, but I can get why there was that attachment to it. But this is just like... I, I totally understand Twilight's popularity. New Moon's... Is, I don't, is, is New Moon a book that people hold in high regard? I don't know, because I don't give a crap. Um, <laughs> if New Moon had had a few tweaks to it and was released as a solo book like if twilight had been written the way new moon was i don't think any of it would have been the same like there would not have been the same addiction exactly the same fandom the same boom it really does show that the heart of the books is that addictive bella edward relationship and then when you take that center out nothing else holds and you don't get the feeling that this relationship deserves to to hold together Bella has no identity outside of this relationship. And that's hard to take as a reader. Yeah, she has some identity when she's with others, but that's their identity. She's not one of those, you know, characters who just is generally mild, but has a, has an actual personality. She has a, de- a personality dependent on the person she's reflecting. She'll be girly when she's out with Jessica or with Alice. She'll be just hanging around, chilling and snarking and joking with Jacob because... Jacob hangs around, chilling, joking, and snapping. She's melodramatic because Edward's melodramatic. She asks interesting questions and is eager to learn when she's around Carlisle because those are some of his traits. She's super defensive when she's around Rosalie because those are Rosalie's traits. I imagine that people who listen to our show are probably fans of the TV show Hannibal. She's almost like a less interesting Will Graham. Will Graham has hyper empathy that causes him to often take on the traits of the people he's around because he can completely you know see from their point of view so it's like that with less murder now i'm just wondering has hannibal ever eaten a uterus oh you know he has you know scientific curiosity and don't waste the animal it, you know you've got to read every part. culinary curiosity he probably has you know it's disrespectful to the to the person if you don't eat everything well that's garrett jacob hobbs's reasoning so, in summary, this is a, a book entirely a setup. Movie is serviceable. We don't give a crap about either. If you must go for your sparkles, just go with the first one. Or read the book and imagine it's being read to you by Michael Sheen. The only good things that come out of New Moon is everything by Cleo Linda. Robert Pattinson sprayed painted abs. Robert Pattinson in general. And the fact that some Native American actors now have some sort of career. Even if, sadly, it seems like most of it is going to conventions. Well, did you read that piece in The Hollywood Reporter about the people who go to conventions and leave with literal bin bags full of $20 bills? I'd take that job. You know, it's a really fascinating article. I remember we had a few of the Twilight actors 
come to our convention and they also had an older Native American actor and they did an entire thing on Native American uh, myths, history, culture as part of the convention. I really wanted to go, but I had work and it was just like, because we don't have much contact of that sort here. Our indigenous population, of course, is Māori. Native American culture is something that we are only experiencing through media such as Twilight. Yeah, it's a real double-edged sword. And for you, probably much the same. There is a vampire YA book that is um, about Native American mythology. I forget its title, but I remember I, I want to read it, but they didn't have it in our library because not many books in our library. But it would be much more interesting to read more books or more anything by own voices writers. I know Cynthia Lightage Smith wrote uh, the werewolf and vampires Which I have trilogy read. type thing with Tantalize, but didn't get quite as much attention as. T- but this is just a reminder that vampire fiction is generally very, very white, and that something as problematic as Twilight and New Moon, etc., being one of the most diverse pieces of, especially young adult fiction with vampires, is a problem. I think that's about it. We've suffered enough through Twilight and you, sorry, New Moon, and you've suffered enough through listening to us suffer through New Moon. Uh, next month, uh, Kelly and I will both be doing NaNoWriMo. Um, I will not be doing a vampire story for NaNoWriMo for once. So keep an eye on that. Because of that, we will be doing a movie. I'm going to nominate Van Helsing. Since we keep talking about it. And his luscious, luscious hair. Especially your guilty pleasures. I don't think I've actually ever seen it since I saw it in theatres. But we know you love Van Helsing. And hey, it's Hugh Jackman. Everybody loves Hugh Jackman. Plus it's on Netflix, so that's always helpful. They really do need more vampire films on Netflix. Yeah, there's only two Dracula movies on Netflix. It's really distressing. Let us know if you are doing NaNoWriMo. We'd love to have more people suffer along with us especially if you are doing vampire fiction. But other than that, get ready for next month's episode on Van Helsing. If you want to get in touch with us, our website is bloodsuckingfeminist.com. We are on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem and also on Facebook at, as the Bloodsucking Feminists. Uh, if you Google around, you'll probably find us or maybe some people complaining about us. We'll see you next month. It's Van Helsing. And until then, don't let the vampires bite. I mean, unless it's your thing, like Bella. <laughs>